Hey, hey D&D, D&D fam. fam, I'm Quick. And I'm Lee, and you're listening to Divas, Divas and Duckets. So what is a diva? I think divas get a bad rep, but to me, diva is all about the attitude. As for ducats, it's your finances, your assets, Skrilla, Guap, your coin. We're talking all things with the potential to affect your pockets. And while we're attorneys by trade, we are divas by choice. Divas and Ducats is for entertainment purposes. Y'all, we are not Series 511 or <laughs> 703 professionals. This does not create a financial advisor nope, nope. or attorney-client relationship. The views expressed here are solely our opinions and the opinions of our guests. It's just our opinions, y'all. Okay, Divas, let's talk Ducats. Hey, D&D family, how are you? How are you, Lee? I'm happy to be in November. 2020 is almost over. (laughs) (laughs) It is. It's like crazy. But you know, I love the fall, so I'm in my happy place right now. Indeed. Yes. All right. Well, welcome back, D&D fam. We are happy you are rocking here with us today. And what is on our busy as usual diva docket? So today we are going to be discussing veterans benefits. It is so Mm -hmm. timely, of course, because yesterday was Veterans Day. So we want to say a big shout out to all of our veterans. Thank you for your service. And we hope this podcast episode does wonderful Mm -hmm. justice to all of you guys out there and will be helpful. Shed some light, even if you're going active duty and getting ready to become a veteran. um, We hope we can provide some very, very useful information. Yes. And special shout out to my favorite veteran my <laughs> brothers in, in, in the army yes shout yes. out to Fort Hood okay and shout out to daddy mm-hmm. <laughs> so yes and I learned well I knew probably closer to when he enlisted but just a tidbit because people kind of remind you in a snarky way mm-hmm. but for those who don't know like Veterans Day is for those who are you know whether they're retired mm-hmm. active duty they're just for people who served in the military mm-hmm. and memorial is for those who unfortunately gave their lives in the force of duty. Mm -hmm. Yep. So before we get into our actual discussion, of course, we have to highlight our boss, Bay. Who do we have today? Yes. So this episode, we actually have a club. It's the Men of Excellence Club at... A.L. Brown High School, and that is in Kannapolis, North Carolina. Okay. And the Men of Excellence Club is a club that empowers, influences, and inspires young men to conduct themselves like gentlemen and focus on their life's purpose by providing life skills which will help them become successful and productive gentlemen in the world. The club is open to all males of all grades at A.L. Brown High School. The club will serve as a basis to promote leadership, teamwork, brotherhood, and community service. And the members of the club learn how to become leaders and mentors and take that skill to mentor younger males so basically they the upperclassmen mentor the lower classmen okay um the club the goal of the club is to support and encourage young men to achieve their life purposes and to teach social behaviors problem solving abilities etiquette respect and just positioning them to become leaders in the world and so One of the things that led this club to become a club is just a really important statistic to me. According to the North Carolina Department of Public Safety, so that's the department that handles the prisons Mm -hmm. and um, criminal enforcement, there are currently 31,048 inmates. Mm. Of those, 28,764 are men and approximately 7,000 are between 18 and 29 years old. So, now, is that a national statistic or a North Carolina This statistic? is North Carolina. Oh, gosh. Mm-hmm. And so the Men of Excellence Club believes that the incarceration rates of young men could be lowered, mm-hmm. which I tend to agree, yeah, right. if young men were shown that their life has purpose or, you know, catch them while they're mm-hmm. young. And it was really important to me, not only because, like I said, it uplifts young men, but one of the student founders is actually my nephew, Trent yes, Thompson, yes. out here being a young scholar. Okay. So <laughs> I think it's important because they're looking for mentorship. They're looking for community volunteers mm-hmm. to come in and speak. So, you know, those of you, you don't have to be a man, but of course, if you're a professional male mm-hmm. or just have some tutelage to give, 
give some extra time to volunteer and be an example of the possibilities for these young men, um, you can definitely contact them. Their email, there's two emails. So the staff advisor is Lamar Harper, and he can be reached at lamar.harper. That is L-E-M-A-R dot Harper is H-A-R-P as in Peter, E-R, at K as in Kite, C as in Cat, S as in Sam, dot K12.nc dot U-S. And the club can be reached at Men of Excellence at A as in Apple, L as in Larry, B as in Ball, H-S for high school, at gmail.com. Yes, and I, I mean, I really love a good male mentoring program. Women, mm-hmm. we have a lot of them, but I think it's especially important for men because oftentimes, you know, I hear from men like, even as they were going through the grade school curriculum from K through 12, yeah. that they rarely had a male to mm-hmm. be able to teach them as a teacher. They yeah. don't have men that look like them unless it's a gym coach or, yeah. you know, a sports person, but not like every time I hear somebody say, man, I remember that third grade teacher, that second grade teacher just mm-hmm. poured into me. So, you know, the trajectory of a person having a male mentor that looks like them really can change the trajectory of someone's life. And what what grade is your nephew in? He's a junior. So that yeah. is so awesome mm-hmm. that he has the heart for that. So, yeah, yeah we definitely want to say, hey, hey bae. bae. All right. So let's get into it. Yes, yeah, so today we have a really, really special guest on um, to talk about this Veterans Benefits. And like I said, this is in honor of Veterans Day. And today mm-hmm. we have attorney Tamisha Larby. Tamisha Larby is a solo appellate attorney and the owner of Larby Legal, a boutique law firm providing skilled legal advocacy to veterans and their families pursuing long overdue veterans benefits. She provides representation before the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit the U.S. Court of Appeals for Veterans Claims, the Board of Veterans Appeals, the U.S. Court of Appeals for Veterans Claims, and various service discharge review boards. She is a decorated combat veteran who retired after 23 years of service. Mm. So I just want to pause. Come through decoration. Yes. The majority of that service included the U.S. Army JAG Corps mm-hmm. and as a JAG officer in paralegal tours of duty as a trial counsel for the Military District of Washington, litigation attorney for the U.S. Army Legal Services Agency and the Physical Evaluation Board attorney with U.S. Army's Medical Command's Office of the PEB Council. The self-proclaimed Southern girl with an edge mm-hmm. found her way into entrepreneurship and veterans benefit law appellate practice after becoming a mother and desiring consistent quality time with her family without having to abandon the practice of law altogether. So we are so honored to have a veteran on to be talking about veterans benefits. Tell the people hello, Tamisha. Hello, hello, hello. I'm so happy to be here with y'all. I'm going to bring all the Southern flavor to our <laughs> chat today. Okay, so thank you, you know, for you know me. us uh, Southern grits over here. We, yes. we love and that. We, the, we lo- yes. We love it. And I just, oh, man. And it was funny because I've known you for quite a few years, but apparently not because I did not know you had did 23 service in wow. our good military of the United I States mean, of America. You know, those 23 years went by so fast. I actually, fun fact, I actually enlisted into the Louisiana Army National Guard my junior year of high school. What? My parents oh, wow. had to sign a waiver for me to enlist because I was a minor. What? And like <laughs> within less than 10 days after graduating from high school, I went to basic training at the age of like, you know, 18. Right. So I never, I didn't really have a plan, like in terms of what I, how long I would stay or mm-hmm. anything. But before I knew it, it had become a career. And the 23 okay. years went by super fast. Let that me just is say that. insane and so awesome at the same it time. Is. So were your parents military? Like what made you want to do that at such a young age? You know, I, I would just say a very influential high school ROTC See? instructor by the name mm-hmm. of Major Dallas Miller. So we talk about, po- you were talking about positive yes. yeah. uh, male role models. Mm-hmm. He was my ROTC instructor when I was in high school. And um, I really wanted to go to college when I finished high school and wasn't really sure, you know, how my family would pay for that. But at the time I enlisted, uh, the Louisiana National Guard 
offer tuition exemption if you uh, went to a state school. So that was kind wow. of like my my first experience with a quid pro quo, so to speak. Right, you know, right. I'll join the Army National Guard. But you got to give me. my service. <laughs> yes. I'll get my college tuition <laughs> exempted. And it just kind of... Um, it's one of those things that you don't know what you don't know, mm-hmm. but it really um, offered me so many great opportunities yeah. that I know without a doubt I never would have um, had, you know, been yeah, able to, to undertake had I yeah. not, um, you know, enlisted in the Army. So Man. It, it just became a thing. Like one thing led to another that led to another. And, you know, and 23 like said, years 23 later, years went by quick. <laughs> Yes, that is awesome, man. I'm glad you had a wonderful journey um, with the military. And it does. It takes you places that you would have never otherwise gone. And it takes you to those places uh, debt free. And (laughs) I just I'm really, really, really proud of you. So thank you for joining us. So we usually start with um, the question of what do you do and how did you get started? Did you always know you wanted to be um, an appellate attorney? I know you said you did JAG, so can you tell them what JAG is and kind of tell us how you got into being a appellate attorney? Mm-hmm. Sure. So uh, the U.S. Army JAG Corps is the official legal branch of the Army. It is known as one of the oldest law firms mm-hmm. in our nation's <laughs> yep. history. And uh, it was a natural progression. So about the 14th year service mark, I had finished law school. I had passed the bar. I was working uh, as a, le- a chief of legal assistance for a training command in Charlotte at the time for the Army Reserve, and I assessed into the JAG Corps. And again, in true form, one thing led to another. <laughs> and um, before I knew it, I was I found myself uh, laid off from a job in Charlotte, but, you know, always could kind of lean on the Army to pick me up for a special assignment mm-hmm. and ended up leaving Charlotte and joining uh, a, team, a, a, a team at the Military District of Washington as a trial counsel on government fraud cases believe it or not and um and and like you were saying i got experience uh trial counsel right before wikileaks and then (laughs) i went on to um become a litigation attorney for the Department of the Army, worked on everything from major weapon systems, acquisitions, to uh, uh, wartime, toxic torts. I mean, I just had like a wide range of things that I worked on. And then as my service was kind of winding down because I started looking like, hey, I'm at 18 years, 19 Mm -hmm. years. I took one last assignment, and that was the assignment that um, was for U.S. Army Medical Command. And um, I don't. I think I think we're going to get into a little bit more of that a little bit later. But uh, I was representing service members, particularly soldiers, um, who had been recommended for medical discharges, and mm-hmm. that was an eye-opening experience mm-hmm. because their livelihoods, and for a lot of them, their lives yep. were going to be greatly impacted by Mm -hmm. the decisions of that physical evaluation board. That is a pre-separation determination of what your disability is, Mm -hmm. whether or not your disability makes you unfit for continued military service, or if you're able to continue your military service onto a point of retirement, um, given that you do have some noted disabilities. Mm -hmm. And um, I didn't know it at the time, but fast forward, a uh, couple years later, after I met my husband, actually, it was at the end of that assignment. I was getting ready to come off active duty, and I met my husband five days before Christmas. And like <laughs> eight months later, we were married. Yes. <laughs> and, um, you know, my life, my life pivoted because yeah. now I have this husband. You know, I'm living in the suburbs. We later had a baby. And I really had to make some critical decisions about what I wanted to do for the next chapter of my life. I was retiring because I was having a baby. Mm-hmm. And um, so much of my identity had been kind of connected to military service. I had to figure out what I wanted to do. But that would not take me away from being, you know, Mm -hmm. a present spouse, a a loving mother. And but I was not ready to walk away from the practice of law. And the most rewarding job that I had in my full portfolio of everything that I had ever done was representing those soldiers Mm -hmm. um, at at those PEB boards. Right. Mm -hmm. 
So I started volunteering with an organization called the Veterans Consortium. The consortium provides appellate uh, pro bono representation for veterans at the Court of Appeals for Veterans Claims. And before I knew it, I took one case and then like in a couple of months, I had like eight cases. Mm -hmm. And um, then I started like reaching out or working with some local veteran service organizations and they would call and say, hey, we have this veteran who really could use an attorney to help them. They've been appealing for years and uh, they haven't been able to get any traction. Would you take a look at the case? And I would take a look at these cases and I'm like, oh, see where this error is mm-hmm. and I can I have a good idea how we can you know maybe get a more favorable result on appeal so to answer your question no I did not know that I wanted to be a VA appellate attorney I did not know I I, I never really even knew this area of law really existed so I kind of right. fell into it right. and then once I my daughter reached about a year old and I had been doing this for a while I was like okay I'm gonna kind of double down a little bit more and I think I'm just gonna make this into a practice mm-hmm. and the rest is kind of history you know i keep a robust portfolio of cases um very interesting cases a lot of my my clients have been fighting with the va for benefits for many many years Mm -hmm. we'll we'll can get into that a little bit more specifically Mm -hmm. later and uh they come to me you know with files that are very voluminous and you know it's in the appeals process that we are able to turn some things around so that's kind of how I got into it just by happenstance wow and it's it seems like a lot of our guests have that it's kind of like mm-hmm. their profession found, found them. them so yeah that's really it's always yeah, interesting I would to say hear. like it really found me because I you know if you would have asked me if I knew anything about this particular thing when I started, the answer would have been unequivocally no. <laughs> <laughs> so you mentioned a couple times actually just about, you know, you, you would kind of have those cases that were very voluminous and, you know, just been fighting the system for a while. And, I, and we know a lot of times, especially government, there can be a lot of red tape. So I, I guess my question is more so what should a person, you know, on active duty, if there's some things that are, are coming up or some injuries, for example, what should they be, maybe be taking a record of to ensure they'll be eligible or to cut some of that red tape? Okay, so a couple of things I feel, whether the person is active duty as in full-time military service, whether the person is on an active duty mission, i.e. National Guard, mm-hmm. Army, or, or in the reserves, uh, serving on an active duty mission, a mobilization, a deployment, um, an assignment, uh, a call-up, uh, or somebody who's going to the weekend battle assemblies, I think one of the most imperative things that people can do is to keep a record for themselves. Um, They need to, um, if they're not feeling well, there's no no reward for soldiering through injuries or Mm -hmm. acting like injuries don't matter. Mm -hmm. Um, Healthcare is made available to service members when they're on active duty, so get yourself to sick call go see the doctor follow up with the doctor get the prescriptions filled and keep a record of that mm-hmm. um in my day we used to call them i love me binder you know you would get a big three inch binder and you would just put your papers in it now we've got digital files available and i think that people should make um make their own digital files and have them accessible, not just for themselves, but also for their families. Mm -hmm. Also need to keep track of um, their things like their orders and their personnel records, Mm -hmm. because that becomes a really big, um, you know, like those facts really matter. Um, In the past year, we've seen the Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit make some substantial decisions regarding Blue Water Navy veterans. Those are sailors who were stationed um, in what is called Blue Water Territory Mm -hmm. during Vietnam that are now eligible for a number of benefits because there are things like ship logs that prove that they were in this certain territory that would have made them susceptible to exposure to Agent Orange during Vietnam that has a number of um, of presumptive health conditions associated with that exposure. So 
you know, those who are on active duty, they need to get to seat call. They need to treat their injuries. They need to do their rehabilitative therapies, whether that's PT, taking their medication. But they also need to make sure that they are keeping records for themselves, mm-hmm. whether physical files of um, records that they're getting from their medical providers, things from their personnel file, or even a little notebook about certain things that are happening. Keeping an active journal also helps uh, when you when you least think you need it. Right. Mm -hmm. And I I can't reiterate that enough because I just remember my father who got 100 percent disability. um, I just remember his stacks and stacks of files. Smart man. I I didn't understand it then, but I just remember stacks and stacks of manila photos before this whole digital age. But, yeah, I mean, even the simplest thing, like you said, that you're not thinking about if you got a prescription for eye drops. And there was a reason behind it. You need to notate both of them and put them in your file. There's nothing too yes, small. I have a client who was diagnosed in service with myasthenia gravis, and I'll skip over what that is. But the way he was treated for the myasthenia gravis was he was given a very high dosage of cortisone to treat that particular condition. Mm-hmm. And as a result of it, um, he developed a secondary condition, um, type 2 diabetes. Well, um, when he came down to proving that the um, type 2 diabetes was a secondarily related condition to the primary condition Mm -hmm. or the directly service-connected condition. You know, how were we able to prove that? We had to show um, what he was um, given or what he was prescribed for that particular condition right. and then mm-hmm. you know tie it all together with how one one thing led to the other and that was deeply buried in his service records mm-hmm. not in his treatment notes or anything like that that was in the pharmacology prescription exactly log history portion of his medical records. So um, while a lot of these things may seem very inconsequential as they are happening, when you've been fighting with the VA 10, 20, Mm -hmm. 30, 40, 50 years, they make a huge difference in the (laughs) appellate process in terms of being able to substantiate these claims. And that's why my practice says, you know, we work with veterans who are pursuing long overdue benefits Mm -hmm. because a lot of them have been trying to prove their claims for Mm -hmm. a long time. Ooh. Now, you know, quick mention, 100 percent disability. And I've, I've heard different percentages thrown around from, you know, family members or just people I know who have served in the military. So how, I guess, are some of those percentages calculated or are they certain types of body injuries versus maybe where they took place? So like the Agent Orange you mentioned with Vietnam, like mm-hmm. how are some of those things evaluated? So um, I'll give you the short version, and that is that there are very smart people somewhere who have um, studied the physiological impact of certain disabilities mm-hmm. on the overall bodily function um, from a, a systems approach when we talk about cardiovascular, mm-hmm. uh, metabolic, uh, cognitive functions, physical functions, all of that. So the VA has, and it uses this thing that is codified in a regulation called the VA Schedule of Rating Disabilities. So when a veteran comes in and they have type 2 diabetes that is not controlled um, by diet or um, met a prescription regimen, that receives a certain rating because that has a, 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 a quantitative impact on that person's overall um ability to function mm-hmm. as a, as an individual. Same thing with um, mental di- uh, disabilities, injuries, and defects. We think about uh, individuals who have substantiated uh, blunt force trauma to the head, mm-hmm. whether they fell or were involved in like an IED attack. We think about co- the loss of cognitive functions, and there are sp- very specific markers for that. Mm-hmm. Um, when you look in the schedule of rating disabilities, there's certain things that are evaluated or certain impairments, excuse me, that are evaluated. And that is how the disability determination is um, derived. It's a mathematical number in terms mm-hmm. of percentage. Mm-hmm. Um, VA math is very funny because although each individual condition is entitled to 
its own individual rating. Uh, when you add all of the conditions up, it's not straightforward math because you can have a cognitive condition, a, a mental condition, a physical condition, and then a systems condition. And each of those is kind of given like a weighted value in terms of the overall impact or how much that would come into play in terms of your ability to function and not even just function for the pur purposes of being a living, breathing human being, but also social and occupational impact in terms of functionality or diminish, diminish functionality. Mm -hmm. So there's not a straightforward answer mm -hmm. in terms of how that number comes up, but the schedule of rating disabilities is like the Bible um, in this practice area and understanding how, you know, how, what, where to look for the rating and how um, an evaluator, a medical, a medical or vocational evaluator looks at um, symptoms, residuals to determine the impairment, which ultimately lead to the calculation of the disability percentage. So didn't think that math would be <laughs> right. incorporated into appellate <laughs> practice, but it is. Right. And that it also sounds like the VA, um, the way they calculate that is kind of closely related to how workers' compensation things are calculated oftentimes. Exactly. Yeah. Even workers' compensation, social security, mm -hmm. uh, disability compensation, very, very similar yeah. themes across um, those individual um, disciplines. Now, is that schedule available to the veteran or is it like really only available to like the attorneys or the people who are... Um, it's, it's, a, it's a federal regulation promulgated by the Secretary of Veterans Affairs and it's publicly available. Okay. It's in Title 38. Um, if you ask me right now, I can't even tell you what I can't even remember because I have it bookmarked right, on my computer. Right, right. But it is, it's something that's publicly available okay. to determine. So if um, say for instance a veteran has uh, diminished visual acuity with only light perception, you could actually either look up their condition or their visual acuity. Is it 2400, 2040, whatever, whatever, whatever their field of vision is and you can figure, you can find what percentage corresponds to that. Right. Mm. That's Perfect. So, and and you mentioned 20, 30, 40 years. I was like, good gracious. Mm -hmm. But so apparently, you know, there's a lot of hardship, unfortunately, and frustration to accessing some of those benefits. And we've kind of talked about some of the, you know, records and why they're so important. But maybe what are some of the other common barriers to accessing those benefits and things that people can do if they're in this situation to minimize that? So, um, Hmm. Common barriers. I really had to kind of limit this list because <laughs> I think when you move to certain geogra uh, geographic areas across the U.S. and even for veterans abroad, mm -hmm. um, certain things are... Um, maybe more or less accessible depending upon the veteran population. One of the biggest barriers I always say is access to records. Mm. Um, presently, as we continue with all things Corona Schmona right now, <laughs> um, the National Public Records Center remains closed and has been closed since March. That is the only repository for archived uh, service records. Mm. Um, if a veteran does not have a physical copy of their service records, are they served prior to the digitization of records? Or they treat it at a military uh, treatment center, hospital, or location abroad that is no longer open, or you know, uh, sent their files for archiving. All of those records are stored at the in, um, NPRC, and that closure has a direct right. correlation to who can get the access to their records right now and um, provide um, proof, certain proof that they need for their records, um, for their claims, excuse mm -hmm. me, or their appeals. And that is, you know, something that kind of really baffles me that a federal agency that has such valuable information is not open. They're currently I only totally open agree. to life or limb situation, homeless veterans, or those experiencing extreme hardship. But I will tell you that some of that, those barriers to proof shouldn't even be in place, in my right. opinion, because a veteran should be able to get their records, right? Mm -hmm. So that is a lack of access to records. Um, that's one thing. The other thing I think that poses a barrier is that veterans don't 
um, may not be fully advised of all of the benefits that they are mm-hmm. um, that are available to them. If you live in a major metropolitan city um, like Washington D.C., Charlotte, North Carolina. Um, you know, Dallas, Texas, you can pretty much get information available. But when you talk about a population of people who suffer from um, disabilities, they are less likely to be economically available to live in such areas. So mm-hmm. we we have to think about rural veterans and mm-hmm. access to things like technology. Like, can a rural veteran really get on the internet to get the information that they need to help them with their claim. Mm -hmm. And a part and parcel of that relates to the act, the lack of access to what we call veteran service officers, VSOs or your County veteran service officers. These are individuals who are, sorry, these are organizations um, who are publicly chartered to serve the needs of veterans, to help them with their claims filings. But these individuals are not attorneys, um, but they are very good at what they do, but they are also very um uh, resource strap both both in terms of like human capital how many people they have working at each place and then just the geographic areas that they cover mm-hmm. and then one of the, the the final barriers that I would just say is the bureaucracy associated with navigating oh the gosh. veterans benefit administration it is a huge organization it's a maze it, with um with several departments, several layers. And, you know, again, when you have someone who is uh, experiencing economic challenges Mm -hmm. or challenges with their health um, and then having to navigate all things, you know, Veterans Benefit Administration, it's a very overwhelming process. Mm -hmm. So making sure veterans have assistance with their claims. And I kind of want to throw in a little thing we call in the Louisiana Lanyap, a little something extra. So not everybody can, not everybody is per se authorized to help veterans get assistance with their claims. Okay. Uh, the VA Office of General Counsel has two special designations or three special designations for individuals who can assist with claims and when and when when fees can be charged for that assistance because unfortunately there are a number of creeping unscrupulous organizations mm-hmm. that have risen up and that um, are very predatory on the veteran community, mm-hmm. costing them thousands of dollars uh, for services that are either poorly rendered or just not even authorized. So let us let me just kind of add that into, into this piece. Um, initial claim filings, you're filing a claim for the first time or you are making any kind of initial claim of any sort, no fee can be charged none whatsoever it is barred by regulation Mm. in federal statute in addition to that the only individuals who are authorized to assist a veteran is a va accredited claims agent a va accredited veteran service officer a veteran service representative or a va accredited attorney the va office of general counsel keeps a public directory of all individuals and organizations which it has um, issued an accreditation to. Every individual has an accreditation number. And so I, I would caution veterans that if they are going to get someone to help them with their veteran claim, they need to make sure the person is um, duly accredited by the VA before they do that. If the person is asking for a fee, whether contingency or cash up front, know that that's not something that can be done, uh, that that is uh, authorized, excuse me, mm-hmm. under the rules uh, for assisting with veterans' uh, claims. So I just wanted to throw that in there that's because super important. that is... Um, that that has that is something that like irks me to no end. <laughs> Seeing people, you know, saying that they can assist a veteran, but mm, not not quite. So can yeah. the veteran, like you were saying, they should check? Is there a way for them to check to make that the person who ever is approaching them is accredited? Is there someone that yes. they can, okay? So if you just do a Google search, mm-hmm. and I'm going to give you the short one: Google search for VA OGC accreditation accreditation search. It will link you to the VA Office of General Council. Council's public VA accredited 
agent, attorney, and veteran service officer directory. Okay. You can put in the person's name first or last uh, and, and just do a search. You can also kind of query it by type. So, But also it's very helpful if a veteran is looking for somebody mm-hmm. to assist them with a claim or an appeal. They can find someone in their area. They can search by city. They can search by state. They can search by zip code. And they can also search by those three types that I talked about. Claims agent, VSO, attorney. Mm -hmm. They can do it there. So it's publicly available. They can check somebody or an organization out before they get involved with them. Mm. And at what point like, should a veteran be looking to hire an attorney? So when they're maybe doing this search. That's a great question. Um, I I say that this is a personal opinion, but I also think um, this is where attorneys are most helpful. Mm-hmm. And that is at the point that the veteran either feels they need an attorney or they've been unsuccessful with a claim and they need to appeal. That is the point in which a veteran needs to to, to retain an attorney, because I'll talk about that mm-hmm. in a little, go into that a little bit more. As, an, as a VA appellate, attorney or VA benefits appeals attorney, the cases I see all have problems. I do not see the cases that have, um, how do I want to say it, that, you know, the VA does well. I don't see that work. I do see cases where the veteran has made several attempts or they've been denied and it's obvious that records are missing and the veteran needs help getting records, um, that it needs further development, like the veteran may need a nexus letter from a medical provider. Mm Mm-hmm a qualified medical provider um, or the veteran needs better presentation of their case to the VA. Um, the VA, the v, the veterans benefits system says that it's non-adversarial, right? They say it's non-adversarial, <laughs> but let me tell you <laughs> that, that I think the experience is far from the truth. It's right. very adversarial. You know, right. there are two opposing viewpoints on a claim. And then it's also, it's complex. There are certain things you need to allege. There's certain good language you need to advance mm-hmm. on occasion. There's certain regulations you may need to cite to. And a lay person may or may not know how to do that. There are tons of resources available, but the veteran is not a medical professional. Sometimes they may not be an attorney or, or you know anyone with any legal expertise. So they really don't know how to convey to the VA everything that they need to do. So one of the things I do in my practice is I kind of convert that language into the VA speak that they need to hear and see and kind of strategize on how to turn it around because again by the time they've come to me they've made a couple of attempts on their own or with a claims agent or a vso and been very unaccessible unsuccessful and time has passed Mm -hmm. and as time passes your effective date can change it could be the difference between getting it service connected three months ago getting it service connected back to three decades ago depending upon what the error is and so that fourth thing that i would say that a veteran needs to consider is that whether or not they suspect or know that the VA is making a mistake about something, usually factually in their claim. A good example would say that I say happens a lot is when the VA says there is no record of the veteran um how will they say they'll they say there's no evidence of any accident or injury or other precipitating event occurring in service. And the veteran will say, You're right. It didn't happen while I was in service, but a year after I left serve within a year within six months of me leaving service, um, I was diagnosed with lupus. Mm-hmm. I left service and I was diagnosed six months later. So what the veteran is talking about, they're not talking about that direct service connection, something happened while I was in service. But they're saying, hey, I'm in that presumptive period, that one year presumptive period where you can presume that if I get diagnosed or I'm having uh, symptoms within one year of separating, that it is service connected. Mm -hmm. And um, here's my proof of that. And VA, you know, you've been making this error for some time. Tamisha, how do we not only get it service connected, but get it retroactive back to maybe the date I originally filed or the second go round when I provided them this. So a lot of what um, 
I do as the attorney is kind of like, not only how do I get them the benefit, but how do I maybe get them the corrective uh, recompense, Mm -hmm. if you will, that they've been trying to get, you know, to obtain for some time. And I think that is sometimes the difference the veteran is seeking and which necessitates hiring an attorney. Right. Mm -hmm. And so are there, um, for the appellate process, I have a few questions about that. Um, is there only one level of appeal? So you appeal it, it doesn't happen, then it's dead end? Or can you appeal that appellate, like we have, you know, the trial court, the yeah. appeals court, superior so court? So there are a couple so. of great things now available now that the VA, um, as of February 2019, has um, implemented the Appeals Modernization Act. So I'm going to kind of walk you through how it goes mm-hmm. right? right um so you get you file a claim and you get denied at the va level va agency level mm-hmm. you have three options available to you you can request the higher level review but if you request the higher level review you cannot submit additional evidence but you can submit written arguments okay. um usually when a higher level review is requested you can also request an informal conference meaning i want to talk to that decision review officer or have a conversation with them, answer any questions, kind of sort out any ambiguity, and reiterate my point about what the error was and why the VA needs to correct the error that it made. That's the higher level review. Mm -hmm. A supplemental, uh, uh, you can make a supplemental claim, which is a form of an appeal. Supplemental claims still down at the VA level, different level of appellate review. But this time I want to submit additional evidence. So the VA may say there's no nexus, no connection Mm -hmm, between mm -hmm. what you're claiming and your military service records. And you're like, hey, there is a connection. Do they have that uh, line of duty report when I was involved in that accident on post, when I fell off that telephone pole (laughs) and I was a radio control operator, right? Right. Do they have that in there? And I'll go and I'll look and I'll say, no, they don't have it, but we need to get that in there. So I'll get it from the veteran or I'll get it from somewhere else or I'll find some other um, additional evidence and then I'll submit it and I say, hey, here's the evidence of the nexus. Give the veteran the service connection. So the the higher level reviews and the supplemental claims are really good for um, maybe flushing out um, differences on facts and, you know, occasionally taking a stab at when um, there's been a misinterpretation or misapplication of the law. Uh, Other times, I will take a direct appeal from the uh, Department of Veterans Affairs directly to the Board of Veterans Appeals. Oftentimes, if there is maybe a complex issue of law or um, more of a legal issue than a factual issue that led to the denial, I'll go ahead and go to the Board of Veterans Appeals. Um, The Boards of Veterans Appeals actually has like three tiers that it, three lanes, excuse me, that it, um, allows in connection with um, appealing to the board. Mm -hmm. One is a direct review lane. That means that board, I'm not submitting any additional evidence. I want you to take a look what's already in the record and make a decision on that. Other times it's board. I want to, I want you to uh, take a look at what's in the record, but I need to submit something else. Um, before you reach a decision that could either be a personal statement it could be a lightweight or memo or legal argument it could be additional evidence it could be a number of things um but that's the second lane that third lane is on board i need um not only do i need you to take a look at this but i also want to have a hearing before an administrative law judge um, before you decide my claim that is also something that is available i need to jump back to the supplemental claim because you can also have a hearing at the regional office with a decision review officer at the supplemental claim level as well. And that is a full-fledged hearing with a transcript, the whole shebang, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Occasionally, the Board of Veterans Appeals would uh, 
may decide in your favor, or they may remand the claim back to the Department of Veterans Affairs for some very specific development that needs to happen. So in the past, when we've maybe heard news stories about how long veterans had been waiting to get claims decided, a little bit of that was the back and forth between the Board of Veterans Appeals, which is a separate agency, and the Department of Veterans Affairs. If I'm still not happy with the decision at the Board of Veterans Appeals, and I've got um, some good arguments to make, I'll take that to the Court of Appeals for Veterans Claim. I would like to pause and say that one of the reasons why uh, we continue to appeal in such a manner is to preserve the effective date of the claim. Right. Because you can always start over, but when you start over, your claim is effective from the date of filing. Okay. So if this has been an ongoing issue where um, it has been, you know, several years or several decades in the making, um, refiling a new claim uh, cuts the veteran short of any back pay that they may That's be crazy. due under one of a number of different rules. So an appeal to the um, Court of Appeals for Veterans Claims actually takes a look at what happened at the Board of Veterans Appeals. The Court of Appeals for Veterans Claims, or CAVIC as we call it for short, has a very unique feature that I'm not certain exists at other federal appellate courts. Mm -hmm. Before you file a brief or before it is set for a panel or before a judge decides it, the court initiates what's called a briefing conference or like a settlement conference because a majority of the issues appealed to the court can be settled or agreed upon between uh, the veteran and counsel that represents the Secretary of Veterans Affairs, usually from the Office of General Counsel. And when that happens, that is called a joint motion for remand. And usually in that joint motion for remand, there's some very specific instructions given either to mostly to the board, but maybe sometimes to the VA on how they need to improve upon what they aired on previously to help us get to the right place. The Board of Veterans Appeals has an, uh, a statutory obligation to expeditiously decide any claims remanded to it by the court. Should there be an impasse at the um, Court of Appeals level, mm -hmm. uh, CAVIC level, then that case is going to proceed to a briefing. Usually I'll file a brief for um, the veteran. The secretary files their re response brief and is usually, you know, I get a reply brief or depending on the complexity of the legal issue or the facts um, of the case, the court may set it for a panel decision. If I'm not happy with the court or CAVIC, I can appeal to the Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit. The Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit only decides questions of law right. from CAVIC. And... Um, that's kind of tough, right? Yeah. Because <laughs> sometimes you have mixed questions of law, in fact, but they only decide questions of law on cases appeals from CAVIC. And if you're not happy with what you get from CAFC or the Court of Appeals for the Federal <laughs> Circuit, you can always appeal to the Supreme Court, which there have been cases that have done that. So mm. those are the multiple layers okay. of um, appeals, if you will, uh, for veterans claims that turn into veterans appeals. And as I was talking about earlier, that's also when the need for an attorney kind of gets a little bit more pressing mm -hmm. because a lot of it will depend on what's already in the record or what was developed into the record at the agency level. So at the court level, can't add anything in there anymore. Mm -hmm. Can't add nothing. They only are going to go by the record. And that's a strategic move to yeah, make it is. as well. If you feel like like your case could find its way to the court. Um, it also becomes, uh, the need for an attorney also becomes more apparent a little bit at the board level, but mostly when you get to the court level, because those claims agents, those accredited claims agents that we were talking about before and those v VSOs um, are not per se admitted to practice before the Court of Appeals for Veterans Claims. Uh, one requirement is that you have to be a licensed attorney mm -hmm. to practice. And I do believe there are there are rules for non-attorney practitioners, but for the most part, those who practice before the court, courts, both courts, have to be licensed attorneys. So, and that was 
rich with information. Um, so I thank you for walking us through that. I think one of the things I feel we would be remiss if we did not ask was, you know, some of the impacts of COVID-19. So I do know we hear a lot, um, you know, I mean, you might hear at work or training on the whole Service Members Civil Relief Act, but like, are there maybe certain emergency benefits available for veterans or those who are, have, have you know, having issues in terms of making payments, whether it's their home or just various loans, are you, um, can you speak to that just because so many people have been impacted this year by that kind of um, event? Especially with the record offices being closed since March. Yes, yes. So let me, um, I I did some research on, on this one because I had not come across any specific VA benefits that Mm -hmm. would have uh, uh, generated like a cash allowance for veterans, but much of that relief that veterans are, and mostly any other person need right now is covered by the CARES Act. So Mm -hmm. having difficulty paying a mortgage covered under the CARES Act, um, automobile loans, but then also kind of pointing veterans to contact their lenders if there are very specific situations um, that are impacting them. Couple of things VA specific though, uh, when a veteran is having, uh, we call it financial hardship and they have a pending claim, VA will expedite um, upon request. You do have to request it, but VA will expedite the processing of a claim. What I have seen um, from a limited number of cases that I've handled, once the claim is decided in the veteran, because the veteran is already pre-COVID was kind of in a waiting status, once that claim is decided, they usually will have the benefits available or made available to them to cover maybe some expenditures that they were unable to cover cover before. <laughs> Another thing that is available are uh, veteran housing vouchers. That is all de- that the availability of the actual housing that is uh, we call them Bosch vouchers that is available to veterans who are experiencing homelessness, but that also is a supply demand kind of thing you can have a hundred veterans but maybe there are only 40 houses you know 40 available housing units that a veteran can go into if they are experiencing homelessness or um, or on the brink of homelessness maybe to save their own home or help them with a rent or mortgage crisis Um, VOSH vouchers something that was available pre-COVID is also available to assist them as well. The VA has, um, I will say this, um, for veterans who have like maybe debts to the VA, as with any federal agency, maybe they've received an overpayment or were subject to recoupment due to the receipt, uh, the prohibition against uh, the receipt of veterans benefits and separation uh, severance pay. The VA Debt Management Center has suspended its, uh, rec- you know, debt collection mm-hmm. activities at the time, be- you know, for the for the time being. Another thing that is also available for veterans, COVID caused a lot of those veteran service offices to close or lay off people. Mm-hmm. So veterans could not get help with their claims for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, they, you know, they would call some organizations and no one's picking up the phone mm-hmm. because everyone's been laid off. And so if they had um, a statute of limitations approaching or a deadline to file something and was not able to get assistance with that filing, the VA is liberally, even this many months <laughs> post, you know, initial COVID mm-hmm. decla- uh, emergency declarations, they are liberally extending those deadlines. So if there are any veterans who missed a deadline between March and today, and even maybe thereafter, that's something they can get with a qualified uh, claims agent or attorney to work on and get those filings in without penalty of being outside of the prescriptive period. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. I wanted. I do want to hit um, quickly on the educational benefits available to veterans because it may you know made me think about it when you were talking about you know how you. That was kind of one of your purposes of even going to the military route because you wanted to go to college and be able to get that education. So mm-hmm. can you speak to some of the educational benefits that are available to the um, veterans? I know we know about the GI Bill, but I'm not sure if that's just solely for active duty or how that works. Okay, so uh, 
better uh, when we think about veterans educational benefits i'd like to kind of separate them into two categories maybe even three mm-hmm. there are federal education benefits i.e those that are derivative or derived from the department of veterans affairs but then you got a lot of state benefits remember i told mm-hmm. you my state if i served in the army national guard i was exempt from tuition if I attended a state school. And I got to tell you, that is not a bad setup. To Mm -hmm. be exempt from tuition (laughs) for four years, no, was not bad at all, at all. So that is, um, we do have the GI Bill, but we also have a couple of other things. So at um, at a certain disability percentage, at a hundred, when a veteran is rated at one hundred percent, they have the ability to um, their dependents, and their dependents in- include their children, biological, legally adopted, and um, their spouse. They are eligible for dependents educational assistance, mm-hmm. and one hundred percent means that the individual is either you know permanently and totally disabled or has disabilities that equal to 100% or they have died from a service-connected disability, okay? Uh, dependence educational assistance. Also at that 100% rating, if you get to 100% and you've got student loans, your student loans can be forgiven. Yes. That is like one wow. little hidden benefit. <laughs> and also it's a tax-free loan forgiveness. Wow. So it's not like you get your loans forgiven and the next year you need to pay taxes. Mm -hmm. That is not, um, that's not how that goes. Some other benefits are the ability to transfer post 9-11 GI Bill benefits to a dependent spouse or dependent children. Um, It's something as simple as just applying, being deemed eligible. Um, That is usually something available to service members who served on active duty and a certain number of reserve and National Guards who have qualifying periods of active federal service. Mm -hmm. But those benefits are um, definitely available. And I'm going to kind of slide this in on educational benefits because a lot of times when we talk about education, Mm -hmm. we're thinking more formal education. Right. But a hidden little benefit that is also available to veterans, um, again, those who have a certain disability percentage, is vocational rehabilitation. Love it. I think that is an incredible benefit available to veterans who are... who have a certain number of disabilities that impair their ability to do the thing that they have done for a certain period of time, but with retraining can now undertake something else occupationally. Mm -hmm. Voc Rehab is a hidden gem in the Veterans Benefit Administration's arsenal that many people either don't know about, but it's also something that can just be applied for. Um, Usually starts with, at the time, I'm looking at my notes, but at the 10 to 20% rating level, okay. can you believe mm-hmm. that That's 10 long. to 20% really yeah. voc rehab can be, uh, you know, can be invoked. Um, I have a client who has a long history as a, a, a pilot mm-hmm. in the military, so both in the military and commercial service, but he has lost his visual mm-hmm. acuity mm-hmm. and he's been a pilot for more than 20 years. He doesn't know how to do anything else, mm-hmm. but he can be retrained mm-hmm. to do things using um, visual adaptive technologies and re-enter the workforce or find other things to do that would help um, add to the value, you know, add to his quality of life. Mm-hmm. He, he's just not in a place or the even type of person who could just do nothing. He needs something mm-hmm. to do. Mm-hmm. Book rehab was the way to go for him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And two things really stood out to me. One, because I harp on this all the time, that forgiveness versus canceling, because I've harped on a couple episodes about if they forgive it, that's still a tax bill. And if they cancel it, it's like it never happened. So I'm really glad to know that not only is that available for certain benefits who meet that requirement but that you know like you said it's treated like tax free mm-hmm. and then the yes. other, yeah so that's that's a, a come up okay <laughs> and the other thing is just that what you were saying about the retraining because I know sometimes unfortunately that's one of the 
I guess, transitional challenges, depending on what you were doing in the military, you know, day to day. And I know there's, you know, some corporations are looking to hire more veterans, but like you said, just that transferable training and for such a low, you know, compared to some of the other requirements, you know, I'm not sure what would qualify for 10 to 20 percent, right. but, you know, it, it seems more attainable mm-hmm. um, as an option. Yeah. It is something I I'm going to say is highly encouraged. Um, I think it, I, I think it's a wonderful program, and I think that um, again, big kudos go to those who have studied um, the impacts of disability and injury mm-hmm. on human function as a whole, and identifying that hey we could also retrain people because or that's what people wanted they wanted to learn how to do something else but whatever it was they needed to learn how to do did not require them to go back to school you know Mm -hmm. and undertake a four-year or two-year course of study Mm -hmm. right and so I know we were talking about some of the educational benefits, how you were saying the GI Bill can be transferred to the child um, or to the spouse. So the other benefits, like the disability benefits, you know, and especially in those instances where, um, like you were said, there was some kind of cognitive um, impact on that veteran. Can those disability benefits be transferred to the caretaker of that spouse or, you know, to to a dependent of that spouse who's basically having to take care of that um, veteran now? Okay, so that's a great question. Um, we do see that um, a lot, but there are two different th- things that are available for veterans that find themselves with what we call incapacitation or diminished capacity okay. of some sort. One is the VA's fiduciary program. That means that the veteran does not, they, they lack the capacity to manage their own affairs. We see that um, with individuals with maybe like traumatic brain injuries. But even in veterans with something like dementia, mm-hmm. we and, and, and what contributes to their diminished capacity does not necessarily have to be service connected in order for the fiduciary to be appointed. I want to point that out. Okay. Okay. Um, the fiduciary could be a family member. It could be a spouse. But as with all fiduciary programs, that person has got to qualify because they are now managing the affairs mm-hmm. of the veteran and there needs to be some assurances that the person appointed is not going to mismanage those affairs. The other thing that happens on occasion is that a spouse becomes the caretaker of the veteran to the detriment of themselves, meaning that they cannot necessarily go work outside of the home because the veteran's care requires the constant presence or aid and attendance Mm -hmm. of someone and that someone just happens to be maybe a spouse, maybe a parent, or maybe a dependent child. That is called an allowance for aid and attendance. Aid and attendance does that way. It's compensation for that individual to aid and provide attendance for that person. So a large number of my veterans have um, disabilities that impact their vision. Mm -hmm. So my clients don't have the ability to drive themselves to a doctor's appointment. They may live in a rural community where some forms of social service, social service, transportation services are not available to them because they live 75 miles outside the city limits. You know, they don't have, there's no service that can come pick them up and take them to an appointment or do the grocery shopping. They need assistance dressing themselves. And so aid and attendance is compensation that can be provided to um, the per- the caretaker of um, the veteran. That is really, really awesome and definitely um, much needed. I can definitely say from my personal experience that is something my mother had to take advantage of um, becoming a caretaker for my father, who is a veteran. So that aid and attendant really, really came in. Um, helpful. And of course, there are people that abuse the system. You know, the veteran is getting benefits and they don't become a trusted fiduciary. And so, you know, family members do come in and take advantage of that check, you know, and aren't necessarily taking care of the veteran. So, um, you know, if there there are def- definitely resources out there for the veteran. Tamisha, we really, really, really appreciate you coming on and giving us such a wealth of information because I think sometimes the veteran doesn't even realize they have access to attorneys um, that can fight on that really that can fight on their behalf it is such a maze it can like you said be really really frustrating when you're getting transferred call to call and this is not the department you need to be talking to and 
uh, it just becomes very, it, very it, daunting. It is very like exasperating. Yeah, it is. So I tell my clients, um, particularly those that try to like help me with their claims, I'm like, <laughs> I am here to do the brunt of the work. Right. So you can sit back. But also over time you start to develop relationships with different departments you know mm-hmm. you start to like get an email to somebody that actually responds back so over time those relationships are um you use your relationships with within yeah. the va within yeah. the board of veterans appeals to help your clients with issues that they're having and so it is always a pleasure one of the things i kind of wanted to not do i do we have room for me to add a little landing app to the last thing yeah. we're talking about yeah Okay, so I know you were asking about diminished capacity Mm -hmm. and things of that nature. Sometimes the VA can flag a person as not having the capacity to manage their affairs. Mm -hmm. They may have to prove to the VA that they can manage their affairs. And sometimes that kind of comes through uh, maybe an annotation uh, in their medical records. Mm -hmm. But other times the family knows that the person does not have the capacity. And so um, family members, caretakers can contact the VA, make the contact with the VA to initiate that review so that either a fiduciary can be appointed and or, you know, that aid in attendance if the veteran is unable to right. do this. I wanted to add that in that um, it's kind of it would be kind of oxymoronic to say the veteran doesn't have the capacity, but the veteran is the one that has to do right, the absolutely when they absolutely. don't even have capacity. Absolutely, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, and I, I just personally want to tell you thank you because I know what I was going through my journey. Am going through my journey. I reached out to you, and you were like shooting numbers and contacts and reading <laughs> laws and. Oh, yes. it was, I'm like, no, yeah. like there's a social worker on 24 seven. <laughs> Somebody is there. Like, yes, back. yes. I, you know, I really, really appreciated that. And things did work out for the good side. You know, just really wanted to appreciate that. Thank you for coming on and giving this information to yes. our listeners. Um, because, you know, a lot of us do have veterans in our family, our veterans ourselves. So we just wanted to make sure that, you know, we give out as much information as possible. You know, sometimes what you don't, like you said at the beginning, what you don't know, you don't know. Um, yeah. And for any veteran that might be going through or in the family, the family members that I might be doing the caretaker, we do want to give the veterans crisis line that they can reach out to, which is 1-800-273-8255. And this information will also be up um, in our show notes and it will also be up on our website. So, again, we just wanted to tell you thank you. And this was absolutely wonderful, Lee. All right. We appreciate it. Um, did you want to provide any information if someone had questions For or sure. how they can reach out to you? To me? Sure. So I am available I'm on the East Coast. Um, I'm available to veterans all across the U.S. and even abroad. I have a couple of clients in Europe. Um, but I am available. My, I'm going to give you my office number. My okay. direct office line is 240-544-5583. You can also email me at hello at larbylegal.com. You can visit my website and request a consultation. It's www.larbylegal. And I'm going to spell that. That's L-A-R-B as in boy, I-L-E-G-A-L.com. Thank you so much for that information. Yes, thank you for being here with us. It was a real treat. It really, really, really was. Oh, my Thank you. We should definitely have you back on again. Hey, well, you know, hey, anytime, just send me a line and I'm there. (laughs) Thank you so much. So, D&D fam, thank you for tuning in. Again, we wanted to say happy belated Veterans Day to our veterans. And um, until next time, have a great attitude. All right, bye.